Welcome to the Forency Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Soren. Forency is a podcast about Near Eastern history, language, and culture, and is brought to you by Forency.us, the premier language learning website for intermediate to advanced learners of Arabic, Hebrew, and Russian. On this episode of the podcast, I spoke with Reem Mahul, the co-founder and creator of Osas, a publisher of children's books written in the Levantine dialect of Arabic. In this episode, we discussed what drew Reem to begin writing children's books in Levantine dialect, the importance of publishing materials in dialect versus modern standard Arabic, and the impact that the stories have made around the world. I had a great time speaking with her, and I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for joining me today. I'm very excited. Thank you for having me. So what city are you in right now? I'm in Jerusalem. And when, when did you move there recently, or you were living in New York before, right? Yeah, so I, I was uh, born actually in the north of uh, Israel, in the Galilee. I'm Palestinian, and uh, moved to Jerusalem uh, to study at the university here. And then uh, for work, uh, we moved, my family and I moved to New York, where we stayed for uh, four years. And then uh, after that, we moved again for work uh, to London uh, for a couple of years, and now back here. We've been back uh, to Jerusalem uh, for a couple of years. Uh, yeah, we're loving it. It's great to be back. It's like coming back home for me. Mm-hmm. So I'd like if you can tell people what OSAS means and, and what you all do. OSAS means uh, literally translates uh, to uh, stories. Um, it's uh, a word actually that I chose uh, to represent this company. And I chose a word in colloquial Arabic because it's a company that publishes children's books in colloquial Arabic, in the uh, dialects, in the uh, everyday dialects that we speak. So Usas literally means stories. Right. And in modern standard Arabic, it'd be pronounced Qusas. 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 Exactly. Yeah. So it it was uh, intentional that we chose a word in Ami for this uh, company because the whole concept of this is to publish books in Mm -hmm. Ami. How many books have you all published so far? So we have published two stories so far, and each story in two different dialects. So in total, we have four books. So the two stories are in the Shami dialect and the Egyptian dialect. And Shami represents kind of the Jordanian, Palestinian, Lebanese, and Syrian dialects. It's kind of Bilad Sham, the Levantine area, and the Egyptian dialect. Right. When you're writing in Shami, I guess, how do you come up with your own unique dialect for the stories, right? Because you're not writing strictly in, in Palestinian dialect. You're not writing strictly in Syrian or Lebanese or Jordanian dialect. So how do you find that medium? I'm trying to figure it out as I go, actually. it's mm-hmm. uh, As you know, there is no one way to say one sentence or one thought in Arabic, especially not in, in dialects and especially not dialects that represent four different countries. First of all, since it's a personal project, since it's a, a really, it all started as a project for my daughters uh, to teach them Arabic, it is, I would say that the closest dialect, it is a Palestinian dialect that uh, represents the general kind of a feel to the books. I try to make it kind of more friendly for all the countries. If Palestinian and Jordanian are very similar in terms of, you know, how we say things, it's very similar. So the tricky point was to make it more accessible to people in uh, Syria and Lebanon. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in uh, Palestine, I would say, I don't want to eat. Uh, you would say, in Lebanese and Syrian. So I went with that form of writing because we understand it, because it's easy, because people in Jerusalem even speak like this. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. It's kind of playing 
moving around with the words so that as many people as possible can relate to it. But it's in no way perfect because we are four different countries representing four different dialects. And within each country, there are are hundreds of uh, different dialects. So whenever you take the book and read, you can understand it, you can relate to it, but the changes are very minor in comparison to, you know, if you were reading a book in Fusha, for example. So on that note, for people who aren't familiar with modern standard Arabic, which is called Fusha, and then the dialect, which is called Amiya or Al-Ghadarije, what's the difference? It's like, uh, for, you know, the English audience, I would say it's really like speaking everyday language English in comparison versus uh, Shakespearean English. It really is like that. It's very formal. Uh, no one speaks like this in uh, day-to-day life unless you are, you know, writing, writing books or on television and news, uh, reading papers. But it is like that. It's a, I would never speak with my daughters, with my family, with my mother and siblings in a formal Arabic because it would be like speaking Shakespearean, extremely kind of old English to them. People will think it's weird. It's not what we use. And that colloquial Arabic is what we speak every day. It's basically English spoken language in the street, at home, mm-hmm. what you speak every day. And the modern standard Arabic is the language of, of the media. And so it's the language of newspapers and news broadcasts and, and things like that, but it's not how people speak in, in everyday, everyday life. Yes, absolutely. It's the language of the book, the language of the Quran, the holy book for Muslims. And it kind of, from that point, it kind of overtook every kind of text, book, news, podcasts, kind of everything that we read and consume as a, you know, books. And that includes children's books. And that's how we started with this company, thinking that it, it just does not make sense when that children's books are written in a language that children do not use, and also a, a language that uh, you know does not represent the way we talk with children. Right. So, why do you think that modern standard Arabic has persisted the way it is? So, even if you you know if you decide to study Arabic at university, whether it's in the Middle East or in the United States, you're taught modern standard Arabic, and dialects are kind of taught as an elective at most. You know, you can't get a master's degree in dialect. You can't get a bachelor's degree in dialect. Why is it that way? And do you think that should change? I think that is the way because no one challenged this way. It has been going on like this forever and no one really challenged it enough to change it. And also because there is this belief that a modern standard Arabic kind of unites the whole Arab world together. There is this language, the one language, that whether you are in Saudi Arabia or Morocco and all the countries in between, if you read it or listen to it or speak it, everyone from these countries understand it. So it's kind of, there is a thought that this is the uniting language for all Arabs wherever they are around the world. I don't agree with it because life changes. We change as people, as societies, uh, as the way we consume uh, language, as, as the way we communicate with each other, and also the way we have, in the last two decades especially, have been communicating with each other. The access we have to each other as a kind of different Arab worlds with each other has changed. So I think this thought we can challenge it now more than ever because it's a fact when I used to live in New York and in London, I had access to people from the Arab world, from all around the Arab world. So whenever I met someone from Yemen, 
or someone from uh, Algeria, we never ever spoke to each other in a formal Arabic. We mm-hmm. always communicated in our own dialects and we understood understood each other. So I think that uh, there is a place to challenge this. We we are a better a kind of understanding of uh, other dialects or other languages coming from the Arab world. And actually, I think we need to promote that in order for us to understand deeper the different cultures coming from these countries. Right. I mean, so on that note, you know, to you, what's the beauty of, of Palestinian dialect and how does it represent your culture? It's everything. Amiya is our everyday uh, language. It's the language of our lives. So when I speak Palestinian, I'm presenting a culture, my heritage, my food, music, my grandparents' uh, lives and history. So it's, it's deeper than just a language. It's, it's everything. For me to speak Arabic, a, a Palestinian, for someone from a kind of Morocco, understanding this, it's a deeper understanding of where I come from. Much more so than if we spoke to each other in a kind of the one language, the, the formal Arabic. So mm-hmm. Palestinian for me, it's in my everyday life. It's my heritage, my culture, my history, and my connection and my roots to this land. It's a very deep connection. And I think someone from Egypt can say the the same thing. And someone from Saudi Arabia and Syria can say the the exact same thing. When I see people from Syria, it brings me kind of closer to how they think, to how they live life. And uh, through these kind of dialect uh, conversations, you understand more about uh, different parts of the Arab world. And I think it's really important that we give it a stage to to become stronger and to become more powerful and to, for us to understand each other more so through this kind of stage. Mm-hmm. I think we're missing out a lot if we don't. What I love about dialect is that it's a living thing. It's not stagnant like like modern standard Arabic, you know, and just like any other language or dialect that's ever existed, it's constantly changing. You know, even when it comes to Palestinians living in Tel Aviv, for example, they're going to use a lot more Hebrew inside their Arabic dialect than than Palestinians living in East Jerusalem or, or in the West Bank or in Gaza, you know, and I think that's that's a natural and, and beautiful thing about about the language and, and really shows that it, it is a living and changing thing. Absolutely. Just exactly the same way as if you go to Jordan, to Amman, people are going to integrate more English into their conversation. And the exact same thing as if you go to Lebanon, there is more French in some parts of Lebanon and more English in other parts. So absolutely, it's a very dynamic kind of change. And we should embrace it and we should kind of work with it in order to to understand it better and come up with a way to integrate it more in our literature, in our Mm -hmm. books. One thing I just mentioned that I love about Palestinian dialect too is how diverse it is inside of itself. So like I said, a Palestinian speaking Arabic in Jaffa is going to speak a different dialect than, or, you know, they'll have a variation of their dialect from Palestinians living in East Jerusalem or the West Bank or in the Galilee or in the South, or if they're Bedouin. I'd like, if you can just give a couple examples that that come to mind of of the differences in inside Palestinian dialect. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I can tell you in my own house uh, that uh, my father uh, comes from a village, a tiny village in the Galilee. And my mother comes uh, from uh, Nazareth, near Nazareth. Uh, that's what, where she was born. So when, when they got married, each one of them kept their own dialect, their own kind of way of speaking. So in my own house, when I grew up, between uh, the conversation that we had at home between my mother and father, they were different. So my mother would say uh, things like uh, talati, 
or Baida and the things like that, that the more kind of sounded like more like town talk. And my dad used the Salafi and Baida kind of style of speaking. So it, it was interesting how we were kind of in the middle and we as children, a product of these two, managed to come up with our own way of talking. But also, you know, when I, you know, if I compare myself from as a village girl coming from the Galilee and then went to university, I met you know, Palestinians from all around the kind of Palestine coming to study, people from Nazareth, Haifa, some from Jerusalem and other villages. And we all spoke differently. So, but, but the interesting thing is that we always knew where this person was coming from according to the way they spoke. So it's kind of a nice cultural thing that you can guess, oh, you speak this certain way. So you must be from the triangle area, kind mm-hmm. of more... Um, Taibi and the Bakal Garbiya and all that. Oh, but you speak this way, you must be from Haifa, integrating more words in Hebrew and kind of more uh, town-like speech. So it's definitely, absolutely interesting thing to study more, deeper. Mm-hmm. How old were your daughters when you all moved back to Jerusalem? So my daughter, my older daughter was born in Jerusalem. And when she was less than two years old, we moved to New York. So she spent most of her life outside of kind of the Arab-speaking world. Mm-hmm. She was in New York and in London most of her life. And that's where the whole idea of writing these books began because I felt like I was raising a Palestinian girl or half a Palestinian girl in the diaspora without being able to give her my language because the whole world around us was English-speaking world. And that's how we I decided that I wanted to speak with her in Arabic. I always did from day one. Mm-hmm. But I started reading books to her. But all the books that I read were in Fusha, in the formal Arabic. And it was impossible. It was impossible to connect to each other. Before bedtime, I had to open pages, translate them in my head, and then say it to her in a language that she understood. And that totally killed the flow between us. I was exhausted. By doing that, and she lost interest. So that's how the whole idea of writing books for children in colloquial Arabic is started. It was born from really Al Haja Um Al Ikhtira. Necessity is the mother of invention. That's the whole background of it. Mm-hmm. When did you publish uh, the first story? So the, the idea of writing children's books in uh, colloquial Arabic started in uh, an evening after I read a book. Uh, bedtime story for my daughter in Fusha. And I decided I never want to do this ever again. Mm -hmm. It was in March, 2014. And the first book was, the physical book was published. The first one was in December, 2015. So it was a little bit more than a year and a half later. So it was kind of a, you know, fast process from having an idea to actually having a physical product. A physical book was almost a year and a half, a little bit more than a year and a half. And it was absolutely the most gorgeous, beautiful process I've ever went through. It's, it was really satisfying. And I feel very, very proud about it. What was the first story that you came up with? And how did you come up with it? And why? So my background has nothing to do with children's literature. I'm a journalist. And my husband is a journalist and we, our coverage was mainly political and kind of Middle East related and conflicts and the migration and immigration and all these things. So everything that we thought about writing a book, we look at our daughter growing up with her incredible big imagination growing with her. And every time she would say, 
a really fantastic thought, like, for example, oh, look, the moon is following us everywhere we go. We would write it down and they just kind of for memory. Or she would say things like, oh, leaves are falling down in the autumn from the tree. Do they climb back up in the spring on the tree? So, you know, we thought that these were fantastic, really beautiful thoughts. And when we decided to write a book, we took all their her thoughts, connected them together and decided we want to write about a girl who has a very big imagination what happens if she loses her imagination for one day? Let's say kind of uh, build around this idea. So, you know, she was totally our inspiration and we took her kind of thoughts as a child and built a story around it. Mm-hmm. And what kind of responses have you gotten from parents like yourself who have started reading these stories to their children? Oh, incredible, incredible uh, responses. That That's what uh, motivated us to continue with this and publish uh, more you know, the sequel for the first book. If I could choose one word, it would be liberation. It's kind of a feeling of kind of freedom that you have a book, a product that you can relate to. And especially Palestinians or, you know, Arabs in the diaspora, where they are struggling in general to pass on the language, the Arabic language to their kids, but they don't have the tools because, you know, most people give up. Like I gave up when I wanted to read to my daughter. It was one of the most important things for me to pass on my Arabic language. So, you know, imagine all the parents who, you know, it's not a priority. It's a kind of an important, nice thing to do, but it's not a priority. So many people do give up. So most of the, you know, I would say 95% of the comments and feedback were extremely positive. And that's what making us want to continue doing this and they produce more books. Right. What was the second book that you published? So the second book is uh, actually a sequel to the first one. I just want to say that uh, we based the books around a girl called Shahrazad, and our daughter is called Shahrazad. So we wanted to write books about her and for her. And she is a Palestinian girl who lives in New York. So basically, it really represents our life and her life. The first book was about a girl who wakes up one day and realizes that she loses her imagination for the day. And it's her journey looking for it and figuring out what happened. And the second book is about hiding places. Again, we took this idea because we know that our daughter, you know, at the age of five and six loved to hide. And so we said, let's write a book about hiding places. So the second book is about her losing her hiding places, which were her friends and going on a journey in New York to look for them. What are the plans for the upcoming stories? Do you have any ideas that you guys want to put down? Yeah, it's uh, our daughter now, Shahrazad, is nine years old. She's very interested in space and, you know, the different planets around Earth and uh, all these things, kind of the big world outside of Earth. And uh, we're thinking that the third book will be about that, something kind of more kind of imaginative and uh, it's something that represents uh, the stage she is at right now. But also we have another daughter, who's, uh, her name is Nairouz, who's now four years old and I'm starting with her, with Arabic, uh, all, you know, starting the same process I did uh, with uh, my older daughter. So we are also thinking to do something more for toddlers, kind of uh, starting with the alphabet and growing with her and with her needs uh, to, to learn Arabic. Right. I can't help but notice that your daughter's names sound Iranian. Yeah, completely, completely by coincidence. My husband used to work in Iraq for many years covering the war there. And outside his office, there was the statue of Shahrazad. And the kind of, you know, strong, smart woman model. And we said, absolutely, you know, that's the perfect name for, uh, you know, an Arab girl in this kind of big world. Mm -hmm. We're bringing 
strong girl and we want her to live up for this name. That's how the idea of uh, Shahrazad came. And Nairuz is also the kind of the beginning of spring, uh, the Nauruz holiday. We just love this name. And uh, I always wanted to call my daughter Nairuz. And that's how uh, it happened. So how old was the second one when you guys moved back to Jerusalem? Shahrazad was six years old, six okay. and a half. My other daughter was uh, 18 months old. Oh, okay. Uh, so very young, yeah. What's it been like seeing the older one grow in her, in her Arabic, living in, in an Arabic-speaking culture? I mean, what's that been like for you to see and, and how has she reacted to it? You know, for me, it's a sense of achievement. We just came back before I'm, you know, I came back home to have this interview with you. We were in a playground in East Jerusalem and the Shahrazad met a Palestinian girl in the playground and she started talking with her. They played together the whole time in the playground. So for me, I feel that I did everything I could for her to feel Palestinian and to to be able to be herself around other Palestinian kids. So, And also, uh, now she is able to write, read, and speak Arabic. So for me, everything that uh, this whole process was a big success for me and for her. She is able to communicate in Arabic and uh, to speak you know, to go to any shop and uh, communicate with people in Arabic. And she is very proud. She feels extremely happy and proud to be able to have this extra language that she knows is very important. She knows that millions of people around the world speak it, that it will open the world for her when she decides to travel to these mm-hmm. countries. As a writer coming from a journalist background, how different was the process for you of, of sitting down to write a children's story compared to, to a news story? Completely different. It's it's a a whole new world. It's absolutely based on imagination. Coming up with the ideas, uh, you can do with it whatever you want. You you shape this idea the way you want. In journalism, of course, it was uh, completely sticking to facts and uh, letting people tell their story, which both are incredibly satisfying uh, jobs. They are really beautiful and important, uh, just as important. But really, it's thinking about the creative side. Writing children's story is definitely a much more creative and you can go wild with it. I'd be interested to know what your process is. I mean, I know you, you were taking notes of your observations of your daughter and the things she would say just in everyday life, but what's your process as a writer? I mean, do you take those notes and then you sit down somewhere and you start putting pen to paper? I mean, how, how do you go about it? It's really having, you know, once we decided that we are going to base the first story, for example, around imagination, you kind of know that you have to give lots of elements of imagination, kind of use these elements to build a story up to the climax and then make it fall into the lack of imagination. So basically you bring all the elements that represent a situation where you have no imagination at all and what it's like. So it's really about kind of, it took weeks to be able to finalize the the script in quotation for this story, the idea. We also consulted with our daughter, with Shahrazad. We read the script to her uh, several times and we thought, what do you think? You know, we asked her what she thought and she gave us some feedback and she said, oh, I like that. Oh, I don't understand that. So we really had to consult with her from a child's uh, point of view and build, uh, you know, a story that she understands, that she can relate to. Then again, we wanted also to make it a little bit more challenging, not kind of a simple concept. 
we want story to be able for you to read it several times until you kind of got the whole idea of it. It's kind of, there is the a whole process of making a rainbow. So there is kind of how do you make a rainbow and uh, all these things. So we built it with her, but then we took our own kind of uh, imagination and built a, a story with it. It's very different than writing a, a script for a newspaper or for a video report because mostly all the reports that we did were very kind of sad and uh, depressing and mm-hmm. they show a very grim reality of life. This one is not. It's kind of a very colorful world where you can play with it the way you want. So what are the plans for the next few years? I mean, where, where would you like to see Osas go and how many stories would you like to get out there? Living in different countries and different regions while having Osas, it made us think about it in a much bigger way. When we started, we thought essentially that this will be a niche kind of project for the diaspora Arabs living in the West who want to teach their kids to learn Arabic. But then very quickly we realized that actually most of our sales come from the Arab world, Palestinians and Lebanese and the Jordanians who love the idea that there is something different, a new concept in books that they can introduce to their kids. So very quickly we realized that that is another market that we need to explore much better. The third market was a kind of a Western students or professionals who use colloquial Arabic in their everyday professional life, but they have no tools or material to use in order to make their colloquial Arabic better. So we really have three very different groups of people all around the world that are in need, that they need these books. So we have the next process is basically to try and understand what is mostly needed, what kind of tools, what kind of books, and they work on them. We think that there is a big need for uh, toddler's books, kind of a more in colloquial Arabic, to introduce Arabic in a kind of fun and interactive way, and also a kind of to produce more books for uh, young adults. And where can people purchase the books? Can you buy them in bookstores? Are they on Amazon? Our books are on our website. So we ship worldwide, everywhere. We had purchases from Mexico and from uh, India and from Greece. So it's really all around. Arabs are everywhere. So anywhere you are and you want to teach your kids Arabic, you can purchase our books online and they, we will ship it to you. We have our books also in different countries. We have them in the public libraries in uh, New York and Manhattan and Brooklyn. We have them in uh, Sweden. We have them in Norway's public library. We have them in Jordan in bookstores. There is a complete list of our uh, kind of all the bookstores and libraries that carry our books on our website. Can you spell out your website for us? Usas, O-S-S-A-S-S hyphen stories.com. Great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. I think what you guys are doing is really great and I hope you keep it up because I know, I mean, just for myself as a student of dialect, I'll use them as well. But thank you for taking the time and I'm really excited about what you're doing. Thank you so much for having me and thanks for your interest in colloquial Arabic. Anytime.